Welcome to California Ballot Breakdown from KPFA, where we take you through the stakes of what's on your ballot, the money behind the campaigns, give everyone enough time to make their best argument, and then try to get them off their talking points. On today's special. I feel he was pretty dishonest about the way he presented it. His email, which I obtained, says, if we can't stop this tax on high-end real estate in San Francisco, it may spread to other cities. It's our first California ballot breakdown local edition as we enter the period of the election cycle when local races get really weird. We'll speak to Darwin Bond Graham about a citywide race in Oakland that is, as it turns out, not quite what it says on the label. Then we'll speak to veteran political journalist in San Francisco, Tim Redmond, about where the money's coming from for last-minute attacks in that city's races. It's all next on California Ballot Breakdown. We are two weeks out from Election Day. That means we are entering the period when local races start to get really weird. This tends to be when the most outlandish attacks go out because there's not much time to fact check them or for the fact checks to catch up to the initial attacks. It's when last minute money floods into races because there is not much time for it to show up in disclosures or for reporters to go through it and figure out who's spending it and why. So today and tomorrow, we're going to take you through some local races around the Bay that are not quite what they look like. And we're going to start in Oakland, where the at-large city council seat held by Rebecca Kaplan is up. Uh, Right now, Kaplan is facing a relatively well-financed challenge by Derek Johnson, who describes himself in the ballot and in interviews as a small business owner. Problem is, he's not. We're joined by the person who reported on this. Darwin Bond Graham is the news editor of the Oakland side. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. Why don't you start by describing what the political stakes are in the at-large council seat election? Yeah, sure. Um, Oakland has uh, seven city council districts and one at-large city council member. So the at-large city council member doesn't represent a district. They represent the whole city. It's a kind of weird council position, uh, and it sort of makes it very powerful and important and sort of on par with the mayor in terms of its um, exposure and the ability of that person to represent the entire city and make policy. So Rebecca Kaplan has held that position uh, for for about a decade. Um, She's known as a progressive politician. Um, If you know, if you go back and look at her record, uh, a lot of the legislation she's sponsored Um, has been focused on uh, supporting renters, um, taxing large corporations and landlords. Um, She's a strong advocate for um, uh, providing better homeless services in the city. Um, And in her political career in Oakland, uh, she has um, become a rival to current mayor Libby Schaff. The two of them have run against each other in races. They've often spoken out critically against one another, against each other's policies. It's no secret that they don't like each other. Um, And so in this race, Kaplan is trying to hold on to her seat and she's being challenged by Derek Johnson, who is well known in Oakland. Um, For years, he ran the Home of Chicken and Waffles restaurant and he's, he's sort of a celebrity 
known as a celebrity restaurateur on the local level. Um, he also has some high profile family connections. Like, um, uh, he calls, uh, Kamala Harris, his cousin, and, um, he knows, um, he's hosted Hillary Clinton at his restaurant before and other people like that. So uh, incumbents often don't get serious challengers, but but this is a person with some like brand equity attached to his name in Oakland politics, who's raised a pretty good war chest, uh, close to $200,000 last time I checked. Um, and also there's independent money coming in to, to fund a tax on Rebecca Kaplan that we've covered before. Um, what do we have any sense of why Derek Johnson at this point in his life is actually interested in holding an office? Yeah. Um, I, you know, I've interviewed, uh, Mr. Johnson a couple times. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he says that the reason he's running is because he's really concerned about the state of the city. He said in particular that the homelessness crisis really bothers him, um, that it bothers him to see people sleeping on the streets. Um, you know, I think that's something, you know, I've interviewed Rebecca Kaplan many times and I, I believe she would say the same thing. Um, and she, she's been known for, um, strongly advocating for better homeless services. Um, another reason Derek Johnson jumped in the race, uh, is he told me that he thinks that the city council has created a hostile environment for businesses in the city. Um, he strongly um, objected to, you know, for example, the city council um, was trying to pass a progressive business tax reform this year. Currently, Oakland has a pretty much a flat business tax. Like if you're a small grocery store, you pay the same rate on your gross receipts as like Safeway. And so the, the, some of the council members, including Rebecca Kaplan, wanted to create a progressively tiered business tax. Um, Chamber of Commerce and others came out strongly against that. Um, and uh, Mr. Johnson said he thought it was a bad year to do that also. Um, and, you know, so he he's actually spoken out against a few of these types of um, reforms. There were some worker protections. There was a right to recall ordinance where workers could get their previous jobs back if they were laid off during the pandemic. He said he thought that was a bad idea also. So he, so another big reason he's running is to create a better atmosphere for business in Oakland. Now, while, while Mr. Johnson's been on the campaign trail um, and arguing against business regulations and business taxes, he's been identifying himself uh, both on the ballot and in interviews as a small business owner, as the owner of Chicken and Waffles. Uh, you found out he's not, and he hasn't been for some time. Can you tell us the story? Yeah. So again, when I originally interviewed him, he identified himself to me as the owner of this restaurant, Home of Chicken and Waffles. Um, and in all of the other reporting that I could see about him, he was identified as the founder and current owner of the restaurant. Um, and he spoke to me and other members of the media as someone who has current business experience, who understands what it's like to have to write paychecks and pay vendors. And he wanted to bring that business acumen to the city council. Um, you know, it took me a while to actually do a proper background check on everyone who's been running this year for Oakland city council. It's the districts one, three, five, and seven in the at-large seat are up, up this year. And so there's like, yeah, you know, it was almost like 19 people who ran for these different offices. So it took me a while to get through all of them. Um, 
And, you know, I checked Rebecca Kaplan and Nancy Sidebotham, who are also running in the at-large race. And I finally got to Derek Johnson. And when I started running his name through some some databases, this is just, you know, routine sort of journalism, um, I noticed a lot of stuff. Um, and, and one of them was this bankruptcy case from 2014. So, you know, I looked into it and I, you know, usually a bankruptcy is not a, um, a big deal. This was a bankruptcy for the restaurant. Um, you know, often a, a chapter 11 bankruptcy for a company like a restaurant will result in a restructuring of the restaurant's debt so that it can pay off its creditors and become profitable again. But when I read through these documents, I found um, that in about 2015, the U.S. bankruptcy trustee filed a, uh, a series of very critical briefs um, before the federal bankruptcy court saying essentially that Mr. Johnson had wrongfully pulled um, over $100,000 out of the home of Chicken and Waffles restaurant to pay himself and to pay a another company owned by a family member. Um, this was a very serious allegation. Uh, and so the ban the bankruptcy trustee then filed a motion to convert the bankruptcy to a Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a liquidation. That means that the company will not exit bankruptcy. It will be liquidated. Um, so I got curious. I, you know, if, if, if someone goes into Chapter 7, that means the company will no longer exist. Well, obviously, the restaurant's still there and still operating. So I, I poked around. I pulled a few more papers. And I realized that Mr. Johnson doesn't own the restaurant anymore. So I, I, you know, I had him call me back. We talked about it. Um, basically, you know, he he was uh, pretty. I I feel he was pretty dishonest about the way he presented it. Um, and so that I mean, that's essentially the story there. Um, since then, he has um, attempted to put out a few statements saying that you know. Um, it was never his intention to mislead anyone, and uh, he's been very critical of that story. I stand by that story uh, 100%. I think it's obvious that he was running a campaign that was um, pretty deceptive and pretty misleading until we had to correct the record there. I guess it raises a bigger question for me. Um, the the kind of meta narrative around a business owner running for office is, I've gotten a lot out of this community, and I want to give back to it. I'm doing fine financially. I don't need this. I just want to give back to the community. Um, if he lost his business in bankruptcy three years ago, uh, do we know if he has a source of income and where it comes from? Or, or, or is he counting on winning this seat to pay his bills? Yeah, I really don't know. I asked him if he owns any businesses or owns any stake at all, in, like any equity stake, if he has any... Um, you know, if he if he owns any debt of any companies, any ownership at all of any um, business interests. And he said no. Um, he says he's an advisor to Home of Chicken and Waffles. Perhaps the current owners who are some of his former employees are, are paying him an advisory fee. But he did. He didn't tell me that. So I, I don't actually know where his income comes from currently. Um, but to be fair to Mr. Johnson, um, you know, he, he is running a campaign on having done a lot of good things for Oakland. I think he can point to things in his record, um, that have been good for the city when he did run the restaurant. Um, you know, he made a point of making a lot of, um, contributions, uh, to organizations around the city. And he made a point of hiring formerly incarcerated people. 
giving them a second chance at the restaurant. And actually the two, the two people who currently own the restaurant were some of the uh, formerly incarcerated people. Sure. But the question of where his, where his money, not just for the campaign, but personally is coming from, if he has misrepresented where his money comes from up to this point, seems pretty pertinent. I mean, we, we've had you on before to talk about the fact that the, the ride hailing company Lyft flooded over $100,000 into a pack set up for the purposes of attacking Rebecca Kaplan, the incumbent who's trying to get a tax on ride hailing services like Lyft passed. With, with that kind of money taking an interest in the race, you, you kind of want to know what interests candidates have. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we pulled Mr. Johnson, you know, when you run for office, you have to file a form 700, this, you know, state disclosure form saying, here's, here's my assets and here's my sources of income. Um, we pulled his and there's nothing on it. So it's, it, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, I think it's something voters should be concerned about. It's something we're, you know, that, um, I'm still looking into. Um, and you're right. Uh, Lyft is, you know, so Lyft has, uh, well, let's, let's put it this way. A couple of Yimby, uh, yes, in my backyard pro housing construction activists set up a political action committee and they appear to have solicited a hundred thousand dollars from Lyft to underwrite the committee and the committee is still fundraising. And so it's receiving money from other sources. The most recent, one of the most recent contributions to the committee was $15,000 from Ron Conway. Um, people in San Francisco will know who Ron Conway is. He was Ed Lee's largest um, campaign contributor, and he's bankrolled many, many politicians and many um, uh, ballot measures in San Francisco over the years. He's known for funding things that are very pro-business, moderate, um, and so this is Mr. Conway's, I, I believe it's his first entry into Oakland politics as a fundraiser. So he he gave the Lyft-backed, YIMBY-managed Political Action Committee $15,000. To date, that committee has spent $104,000 on ads supporting Derek Johnson and $24,000 on ads that are negative um, against Rebecca Kaplan. And then on the other side, there's a, there's a committee that's backed by SEIU 10 to one and the labor council. And it, it has paid about $120,000 for ads supporting Rebecca Kaplan and $22,000 in ads that are negative of Mr. Johnson. So, um, that, so, you know, the committee backing Johnson, it is, uh, it, it does have a rival, um, on the, on the labor side that spend about, spent about an equivalent amount of money in that race. All right. Fair enough. Darren Bon Graham, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Brian. Darren Bon Graham is the news editor of The Oakland Side. In a minute, we will cross the bay, take a look at the last-minute money that's been flooding into San Francisco races, particularly for independent attacks. We'll speak to veteran political journalist Tim Redman, who got his hands on an internal memo from the business-backed campaign to defeat just about every tax measure on the ballot. Stay with us. Just a reminder what you're listening to. This is California Ballot Breakdown. It's a production of KPFA. And if you don't want to miss any of our election segments, you can subscribe to it as a podcast. Just look for California Ballot Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, kpfa.org. 
My name is Brian Edwards Teekert, and I will footnote that uh, everybody we're interviewing for these local editions is a journalist working for a nonprofit local news outlet. We are in the midst of a massive, massive retreat from any meaningful coverage of local politics by the commercial media in this country. And if you'd like to support reporting like what you're listening to, uh, you can follow the links in our show notes to donate to the organizations of any of the guests we're having on. Continuing our look at the money going into local government races, mostly at the last minute, we're going to pick up in San Francisco, where there are multiple tax fights on the ballot, a lot of seats on the Board of Supervisors in play, and millions of dollars flooding into committees that are circulating attack ads in both. We're joined by Tim Redman. He's a veteran political journalist covering San Francisco and the founder of the nonprofit news site 48hills.org. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. So, um, you know, this is our first San Francisco segment of the election cycles. I thought maybe before we got into the details of the money, you could just start by walking us through what the stakes are on this year's ballot. Yes. Well, um, stakes on one level are control of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, which now has a progressive supermajority. The mayor, London Breed, was just on Freakonomics Radio saying that the Board of Supervisors is way, way to the left, and they're following all these lefty constituents and lefty organizations. Um, the uh, more centrist, or I would say economically conservative forces, are trying really hard to shift control of the Board of Supervisors to a more economically moderate group. Um, we also have a number of important propositions on the ballot, including a measure that would raise the real estate transfer tax on properties sold for over $10 million. And that money, because of trailing legislation, is designated to go to rent and mortgage relief, rent relief for tenants, mortgage relief for small landlords um, under COVID. We also have a change in the city's business tax, which would shift some of the burden of the business tax onto tech, which has escaped much of the burden of business taxes. Um, even the mayor supports that one. And we have a measure on the ballot that would um, raise taxes on companies that pay their CEO more than 100 times what they pay their average worker. So these are all things that are very high stakes for both local revenue and for um, the real estate industry, the tech industry, and the allies of Mayor Breed. All right. A lot of our San Francisco listeners will have been deluged by attack mailers at this point. Um, let, let's get into where the money's coming from for them. How about we start with Neighbors for a Better San Francisco? Yeah, there's what's happened. What always happens when big money comes in and wants to influence San Francisco elections is they create these lovely sounding front groups. Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. And um, when you look at who Neighbors for a Better San Francisco is, it is funded almost entirely by big real estate, big tech, and some Republican donors. William Oberndorf, who um, has given millions of dollars to the Republican Party, particularly to Mitch McConnell's PAC to keep Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in control of the Senate. He's literally given millions and millions of dollars to them, has also put up so far $300,000 to try to stop these tax measures and shift control of the Board of Supervisors. And they're doing that, of course, in the way they do with these somewhat ridiculous but vicious attack ads. They're, for example, in District 7, 
they're attacking one of the candidates, Velasca Nguyen. Um, they're attacking him for defending a woman who was accused of putting racist graffiti on somebody's driveway. Well, Velasca is a public defender. That is what he does for a living, is he defends people who are accused of crimes who don't have money for a lawyer. So to attack a public defender for being a public defender is kind of bizarre, but they're using this to try to go after him. Um, they're attacking uh, Dean Preston, who is a incumbent up for re-election in District 5. They're attacking him, saying that he personally gave out a thousand tents to homeless people, which is an awful heavy lift for one person. He has not handed out a thousand tents to homeless people, but they're coming up with anything they can to attack candidates. And then they've got this whole thing attacking all of the progressive tax measures. So um, it's it, it, and they, they bounce that money through different groups to make it harder for us to track it. Some of them are registered at the state level. Some of them are registered at the local level. You have to go through two different sets of search engines to try to find out where this money comes from. But that's what it is. It's big outside money. Much of the money, not all of it, but much of it from outside San Francisco. All right. Um, that is the Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. Uh, so far, I've tracked about $3 million that have moved through it. Yes. There's even more money that you found, at least if you count both the cash and the commitments going through yep. something called the Committee for Economic Recovery. Who are they? That is a wholly owned creation of the San Francisco Chamber of Commerce. And that money is being used almost exclusively to go after the real estate transfer tax. And when you see the emails from the people involved in this, um, particularly from one developer, um, Oz Erickson of the Emerald Fund, his email, which I obtained, says, if we can't stop this tax on high-end real estate in San Francisco, it may spread to other cities. It may spread across the country. If we can't stop this, you'll, they'll be taxing rich people everywhere. So we have to stop this right now in San Francisco. So that's what that is. And that's money, as I say, the, the measure Proposition I would increase the transfer tax on properties sold for more than $10 million. And the way real estate works in California, the seller pays the transfer tax. So this is, for example, if Donald Trump sells his share in the Bank of America building, which is currently on the market, 555 California, owned by Trump and a New York real estate investment group, if they decide to sell that, this would increase the transfer tax that they would have to pay after the sale, which doesn't really seem to be anything that's going to hurt small business economic recovery or any other economic activity in San Francisco, particularly since a lot of these properties are owned by out-of-town real estate investment trusts. But the Chamber of Commerce and big real estate wants to stop this at all costs, in part because of the precedent that it might set. So that's what that is. That's just the Chamber of Commerce. Okay. So I, I get the Chamber of Commerce, which basically represents large businesses um, fighting taxes that would impact them as a matter of self-interest and also as a matter of bad precedent. They don't want copycat measures in other cities. Can you explain the big money going into the supervisor races? Like, like in terms of concrete policy, what, what do you think the donors to neighbors for a better San Francisco are afraid of progressive supervisors voting for? Well, for one thing, it was the progressive supervisors who put these taxes on the ballot. Um, the um, the big tech money wants to avoid regulations. 
on whatever the next big tech thing is. For example, we're now hearing that Amazon wants to deliver packages by drone. And there are several companies that are setting up robot delivery vehicles that basically robots would come up on the sidewalk and drop a package off at your door. And the board of supervisors, the current board of supervisors, remembering what happened with Airbnb, Uber, and Lyft when these companies violated city law with impunity are already starting to say, wait a minute, maybe we should think a little bit about the robots driving down the sidewalk with passengers, particularly in neighborhoods where there are seniors and uh, people with disabilities and the sidewalks are somewhat narrow. This thing could be a disaster. We're not going to just let them do it. We're going to regulate it. Right. So between taxes and regulations, that's what the tech industry really, really doesn't want. And also, um, I think it's pretty clear. I we don't have any evidence of this, but the attacks are all against candidates who the mayor opposes. I have no idea whether the mayor has been in touch with any of these big donors. I know that she is increasingly critical of the board of supervisors, um, increasingly saying that they're hampering her more moderate pro-growth agenda, and that um, and and so it's not a surprise to anyone that all the big money is going into candidates who she opposes. In terms of the, the quantities of money, like how does this compare to, to prior election cycles? This is bigger than we've seen in quite a while. This last minute now will probably approach $5 million. We just got another 200000 yesterday dumped from a group called Fed Up San Francisco, which is funded to a great extent by Neighbors for a Better San Francisco. So that's that same money flowing through a different front group um, and some other big real estate money. Um, we could see $5 million dumped in just on local races, which is a, a, an astonishing amount of money for a year when the mayor is not on the ballot, when this is just the Board of Supervisors and a few propositions. So it's big money. And like, you know, we're, we're still two weeks out from Election Day. Like, when big money donors move last minute donations into politics, how much of that happens in the last two weeks? Like, when, when do we close the chapter on how much money got spent? Uh, probably not until after Election Day, because they'll probably be spending money right up until the last ballot is cast. Um, and some of the filings probably won't be for a few days later. So this is, yeah, this is going to go on. You know, I have to say, I'm not sure how effective it's going to be compared to previous years, because a whole lot of San Franciscans have already voted. Um, so a whole lot of people have already gotten their ballots and returned them since we're all we're doing vote by mail and the vote by mail ballots arrived for I, I think I got mine 12 days ago, something like that, 10 or 12 days ago. So um, the last minute attacks may not have as much impact as they have in the past just because, you know, they so many people have already voted. Is it? surprising that so much of the spending is going into negative attacks rather than, you know, promoting the candidates who are trying to unseat incumbent supervisors? No, because I think they figure that this is the most effective way to spend that money. Um, you often see negative attack pieces coming from these outside groups, because let's just look at District 5 for a second. Valley Brown, who's running, who was the appointed incumbent, was defeated by Dean Preston and now is running to unseat him, doesn't want to be in the position of attacking her opponent with vicious negative ads. Because then her opponent, Dean Preston, can simply say, well, 
what would you do about the homeless situation? How, what, what are you doing? It's, it's harder. Candidates don't like to go negative if they can avoid it. So, they ha- so instead, these outside groups come in and do this. We see this all the time. This is where the negative ads come from. And as I say, they're, they're, they're targeting the districts that they think could be a swing district in terms of control of the board, and they're going after the candidates the mayor doesn't like. How many seats would have to flip to, to change the functional majority on the Board of Supervisors? Well, right now there's a kind of shaky, but mostly there, eight-foot majority, which is enough to override a mayoral veto. You flip one, and suddenly you've only got seven, and then you can the mayor can veto anything without being overridden. Um, obviously, you'd have to flip three to give the moderates or conservatives, however you want to refer to them, the majority on the board. Like nuts and bolts what what is the board of supervisors actually uh, used its power to override un, under the current arrangement well they haven't overridden anything what the, what's happened is a few measures have been passed by an eight vote majority um, that the mayor simply knows that she can't veto so um, just knowing that and having that majority in place is disturbing to a chief executive who knows that if the and it's not always you don't always have eight it's as i say a shaky supermajority but when a supermajority of the supervisors want to pass something, they can pass it without worrying about a mayoral veto. All right. Tim Redmond, uh, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. All right. Happy to be here. Well, that does it for our first local edition of California Ballot Breakdown. We're going to continue the local coverage tomorrow. We'll be taking a look at the mayor's races in Berkeley and Vallejo where there is a lot going on with the candidates that doesn't make it into the campaign lit. If you want to make sure you don't miss that or any other episode, hit that subscribe button. Just look for California Ballot Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, kpfa.org. A big thanks to Corinne Smith, who produces these segments. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. And remember, in California, your vote matters even more down the ballot.